Mercy Hospital has a deal that would save the near Southside Medical Center. Now Flint, Michigan-based Insight is negotiating a deal with current owner Trinity Health that could keep the near Southside Hospital open. And Chicago finally crosses a particular housing market threshold. We'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin for a look at news and data from the local housing market. Our home values finally reached their 2007 level in the fourth quarter of 2020. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, March 4th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Cranes Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust and Salonis. I'm joined now by Cranes residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Hi, Dennis. How's it going today? Great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Well, we have a ton of things to talk about. You had a busy week, I feel like. Well, it's a busy market. You know, since, right. since things really turned, I've been just running to keep up. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Well, let's start with um, Chicago has finally crossed a housing market threshold. Tell me about this threshold. Uh, our prices, our home values finally reached their 2007 level in the fourth quarter of 2020. That's according to the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which, of course, is a federal agency. And they track that for 100. Well, they track it for the entire country, but they also post the data on 100 metro areas. And they sent me something saying, hey, you guys crossed uh, your 2007 level. And I thought, well, hmm, when did other cities cross 2007? Many of them started in uh, 2012, eight years before we did. Uh, Of the 25 largest metro areas in the United States, Chicago was last to cross that line. And so why does that matter? I bet you're going to ask me. Well, if you've owned your house since early 2007, they used early 2007 as a baseline because all most metros Um, dropped right at around that time, either late 2006, early, mid 2007. So beginning of 2007 is a good baseline. If you've owned your house for all that time, uh, or for longer, of course, then you're, and and it's your biggest investment, typically your home, then this investment of yours has been sagging for all that time. And of course, as you and I have discussed many times, you shouldn't think of your house only as an investment, but it is also an investment as well as being a home. And for so long, it wasn't performing uh, or it wasn't back to its baseline in the Chicago area. Now, of course, that's a metro-wide figure. That doesn't take into account the fact that places like Humboldt Park have seen dramatic and West the West Loop and others have seen dramatic increases prior to 2020. And then we've seen places like Lincoln Park, um, I'm sorry, uh, Lake Forest and others in the suburbs have big run ups in, in 2020 uh, because of the pandemic or related to the pandemic. But overall, our metro area finally crossed early 2007 where we were. At the end of 2020, we were up about 1.7% um, our home values from early 2007. There are cities that are up well over 100% from 2007. 
from early 2007. And while you may not own a house here and in Dallas, where prices are up that much, it does sort of give you an idea that your uh, investment hasn't paid off like other people's investment, which might uh, make you think you don't have as much in your household. Well, you don't have as much in your household wealth, but it may make you feel that you're poorer than the person who who um, bought a house in Houston at the same time or has had a house in Houston at that time. It really is a, a measure of household wealth for people who have owned homes for that long a period. And and what, what was surprising as you started looking at other cities? Did you find any kind of interesting anomalies? Because I, I asked that because I feel like Chicago, we've always done it our own way. We've always been yeah. kind of doing it differently and doing it at our own pacing. Did you find any other kind of interesting outliers or, or interesting details in other cities? You know, not really. The thing, um, if people were to go and see the story, we we had a chart in this story. When you look at it, I mean, it's a very it's a a very clear funnel. Um, I, I can't remember which is the one that is highest. I think Denver is the city that is highest, and it's at something like 160 percent, 125 percent of prices in 2007. And then they just, you know, it comes down to ours at 1.7, and um, it does show that you know, re-arrival at our old prices has been uneven. Some cities didn't get there till 2020. We, of course, were the only ones in the fourth quarter of 2020. But you can see this. I mean, it it it's um it was a surprise to me that we were so far behind, even though of course I've been covering this day after day since well before 2007. And you and I have talked about this many times. It still is when you see it laid out visually like that, it's a little startling. I was going to say exactly the same thing. You and I have been talking about this for such a long time. And yet to look at that chart really makes it a whole different thing, makes it kind of next level. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say to the people on Twitter who are going to scream at me that, you know, this is baby boomers complaining about their about how home values used to be in the 20th century and that sort of thing, which I get every time we cover a topic like this. Sure, that might be true, but there are a lot of people uh, for whom their home is the biggest investment they have. And if you're sitting in Chicago with your investment growing at a very, very small rate and only just in 2020 surpassing 2007, and your cousin, your brother-in-law, whatever it is, is in Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, Denver, where a lot more is happening, it does have an effect on what you think what you think the economy is doing for you, what you think your household wealth is doing, how you feel about funding anything from your children's college to retirement or anything else. Um, it is a legitimate measure, even though I know I'm going to get creamed on Twitter for it. People are going to complain about anything you do on Twitter, so you might as well just go for it. <laughs> People are going to complain either way, Dennis, so we can never That's win on Twitter. True. Let's shift and talk about some houses. We've got a lot of houses to talk about. First, let's talk about the property taxes that Michael Jordan has paid on his house by not selling it. Um, yeah, this is another one that once I vi once I actually laid it out in front of myself, I was pretty surprised. Uh, Jordan listed his Highland Park mansion for sale on uh, February 29th, Leap Day 2012. So nine years later on March 1st, because of course we didn't have a leap year this year, um, I added up his property tax bills. He hasn't been able to sell the house in all that time. People know his price has come down. It's a, a little more than half of what he was originally asking. All that is well known. But I then added up his property taxes. What is this house costing him all this time it has sat empty? Well, the answer is $1.1 million, just slightly shy of $1.1 million. 
I believe the house has been empty all that time. It's possible that a caretaker, a family member, whatever is living there. Um, but I believe it's been empty. So while trying to sell this house, Jordan has paid 1.1 million in property taxes. About 67% of your property tax bill, if you live in Highland Park, goes to the schools. And so he's paid about $760,000 in taxes that went to the Highland Park school districts in these past nine years. His kids are out of school. Uh, his kids didn't even attend Highland Park schools, but he doesn't have kids in school. He does. He's not using the house, and yet he's supporting the schools at that level. And the, the remaining roughly uh, quarter of a million plus went to other services in Highland Park. I don't know Michael Jordan, but I would bet that that's the kind of number that sort of irritates him. He's he's worth 1.6 billion according to Forbes, but I've spent 1.1 million dollars just to let this house sit. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, even a billionaire, I think anybody would just feel like I've just paid to let that house sit there. And of course, I don't know other carrying costs he might have mowing yeah. the lawn, keeping the pipes from freezing, whatever it would be. Property taxes may be the, the biggest expense. They're over $100,000 a year for him. That's the total 1.1 million in nine years. What are you going to do when that house finally sells? Uh, move in. Because <laughs> you buy it. I feel like you have been on this story for such a long time. About I have. I actually reported that it actually, thank you for bringing that up, Amy. I was the first back in 1992 to report that he was building the house. That's right. Um, and then it comes back and it goes on the market in 2012, 20 years later. And there I was again. And now year after year after year, we look at the fact that it is not sold. I feel like it's going to involve a backflip or something when that house finally <laughs> sells. <laughs> Well, let me know when it happens. I want to catch yeah. that on video. All right. Uh, let's talk about a rare Frank Lloyd Wright cottage that sells before it's even for sale. Yeah, this one's really interesting. We can talk about why it's a, a rare house, but it sold. The real estate agent told me she said on Facebook, hey, we're going to be taking pictures of this house for my listing, you know, tomorrow at nine or whatever. And a bunch of agents showed up and she got an offer from one of them that day, an agent for somebody who lived in town and apparently had always liked the house said, we'll take it. And so it sold at full price. It sold so quickly, she didn't have a chance to put the photos on the listing and she ended up sending them to me for our story. Um, it's a great little house. It sold for full price, six, 635,000, um, which was a pretty good profit. The person who was selling bought it uh, in the 200s I can't remember, I think 15 years ago. Uh, and it's a really unusual Frank Lloyd Wright house in that it's from his affordable housing plan called American System Built Houses. Between 1911 and 1917, he was working with a Milwaukee firm to make prefab houses like the Sears kit houses and some of the modern prefab things you and I have discussed. Uh, but of course, these were Frank Lloyd Wright designs, so they would have been even nicer. Um, if you read some of the uh, information about these houses on Frank Lloyd Wright, the Frank Lloyd Wright Conservancy site, uh, they say that he always had an interest in doing affordable housing, though most of his clients, of course, were wealthy people doing uh, trophy houses. And so he works with this Milwaukee factory to create a, a system-built house, a kit of parts the factory in Milwaukee is going to manufacture it and then ship it to your site for assembly, which saves a lot on, on materials and, and um, labor because you don't need skilled labor. They just have a set of instructions. 
Only about 11 of these were built because World War I intervened and the materials were no longer available because they were diverted to war use. Of those 11, there are a couple in Milwaukee. There's, there's one in Lake Bluff, this one in Wilmette, a couple in Beverly in the city. They're in Gary, Indiana, and in Iowa. Um, so this it really is rare. It's one of what is believed to be only 11. There may be more. Those are the only ones that have been identified. It's small. It is a cottage, but it's got um, all that banded trim that he's known for and the center of the house fireplace thought of as the, the center of the home. Yeah. smaller than what we're what you usually see when you see those grand Frank Lloyd Wrights on Sheridan Road or in Oak Park and that sort of thing. And yet you look at it and right away you know it's a Wright house. His style is all over it and it's so clear uh, that it is. Interesting though that this sold so quickly because I think we talked not six months ago about how Wright houses were kind of struggling to sell. Of course that's at the higher end but this seems like a little bit different story there. Yeah, I think there are two differences. One, this is in really good shape. A lot of them have come uh, needing something done. But two, the market is on fire. Uh, in fact, those I'm realizing those are the words the agent said to me. Will met. She said, yeah, it sold because it's a Frank Lloyd Wright design, but it also sold because people are just snapping up homes in Wilmette and many other places right now. Uh, so, And at that price, I mean, there are very few houses in Will met for six hundred and thirty-five thousand. Plus, it's not only a right, but a very rare one at that. So, and people, I think people do like their bragging rights. They're not yeah. going to pay up to get it, but it is nice to be able to say, "Yes, this is a Frank Lloyd right," and here's the story behind it. Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely part of the whole deal. All right, let us go to a Lincoln Park mansion that sells for the highest price so far in twenty twenty one. Yeah, and it's only March. <laughs> And it's uh, only March. So the that's year a thing. is still young. And we've already had two sales at 9 million or more. In January, we had one at 9 million, a penthouse in Lincoln Park. And now in February, but I reported it on, I think on March 1st, um, a sale at nine and a half million in Lincoln Park. This house set a couple of records in the past. It was the highest price of the year, uh, 2008, I think, uh, sometime in the past. It also was the the biggest sale price in the city since the housing crash. Now it came back on the market and sold quickly at nine and a half million. It's quite a house. It's on three lots. And we've talked about these kinds of houses before. Um, they built the house on two lots and then the third lot came available. So it's, it's a, the side lot is separate. I mean, it's, it's a piece of the property, mm -hmm. but you have a big side yard. The house doesn't extend into really, but you have this nice uh, walled garden. And at the inside of the house, I was in there way back when it was for sale sometime in the two thousands. It's so pretty with the big rooms. And I think we're going to see the sort of greenhouse. There's a passageway from the house to the attached garage that is all glass, like a greenhouse or a conservatory. This kitchen that opens up into the family room and has windows on uh, two sides, really a beautiful house. I mean, you'd expect really a beautiful house for nine and a half million, but still. Sure. Lincoln Park, when these multi-lot houses were really going strong, there was all this trouble with, can you have an attached garage? What can you do? And these breezeways now, uh, I believe, are no longer accepted by the, uh, by the aldermen. But at the time, I mean, they they connected the house and garage with this space that in the winter, that glassed in space in the winter, you might keep all your house plants or you might sit out there to read in the sun, but protected from the cold. You might do all of the above. You might do all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> all those things. Um, 
just a really from stem to stern a really nice house and um and sold quickly for nine and a half million yeah and really interesting details in that house it's we've seen a couple of these that are very white very airy but have a lot of really special details i mean i'm looking at those um, that stained glass window panel that kind of is part of the kitchen that big open floor plan it's very pretty house it is it is all right, let's go to another one, and that is a, a Bucktown house that has been reimagined by an architect. Yeah, this one's really interesting. So this was built um, in uh, 1998 when Bucktown was really sort of not yet the phenomenon it is, but becoming the phenomenon it is. And then these two, uh, this couple, one is an architect, one is a construction manager, bought it really with the idea of rehab. The architect does work in airports but he wanted to do a residential job and he wanted to do it for them. So it had a lot of glass elements. It had skylights, you know, it's on a narrow lot as a lot of Chicago houses are, but they were bringing in light in various ways, like from big skylights and a front wall of windows. But one of the things he did here in the back is he opened up what was a a wall with doors and windows and made it uh, it's a full glass folding wall. It's one of those nano walls so that when it's closed, it's weatherproof and all that. But when it's open, your opening it is as wide as the house so that the indoor and outdoor really meld together. This living room and all the main rooms are on the upper level. It's kind of the second floor, but because of a sub-basement, it's sort of the third floor. But the kitchen and everything are upstairs. The bedrooms are below that, which means you're walking right out. That deck you're walking out onto is the roof of the garage. So you're not down at the alley. Yeah. And you're also uh, at the front of the house when you go, when you look outside, you're up in the trees. This is one of the changes they made. So the facade is not on the left in this image is not very changed. It, It has a great big glass opening, which of course was designed to bring light into the interior. But he reworked everything inside. You come into just a little landing and he moved the stairs and that sort of thing so that you come in. Uh, You can see on the right, you can sort of see on the right, you see three levels of the house as soon as you walk in the door. You're standing on this sort of mezzanine looking at three different levels of the house, including one above you where, uh, so the floor didn't come all the way out to the facade because they wanted the light well. Um, And he, the, that floor is the dining room. He, he and his wife wanted the dining room bigger. So they wanted to extend the floor, but not block the light. So you can sort of see in the upper right here, but I think we'll see in other photos, he extended the floor with glass. Interesting. The dining room floor is wood to a point, and then it's this glass and then a glass railing. I described it as vertiginous because I was thinking that if you're standing there looking at the room below, you might get a little weirded out. And he said, yes, that people do. Some people freak out because it's it's a glass floor. It's like going to the ledge at the Willis Tower, um, except a hundred stories lower. <laughs> right. And, um, and, but it's, of course, it's engineered to be completely safe and, and all that. And he also pointed out that if that scares you, if you're the buyer and that's a little uncomfortable, all those glass panels could be lifted out. Of course, they could be replaced with wood, but you could also smoke the glass or frit the glass so that it's a little bit less dizzying. But what it does is not only give you this fun effect in the dining room, but make sure that light goes from those big windows down into the lower part of the house, which is sort of a, there's a mezzanine and then a a sort of half basement level. 
That's such an interesting um, strategy to get light into the house. I mean, I think just last week we talked about a house that kind of was split level and you walk in and you're in an atrium. So the bedroom is kind of a loft area. That kind of same thinking on that of how to, of creative ways to get light into a multi-story building. Yeah, I think, you know, Chicago is known for having these rows and rows and rows of slender lots. And there are so many things that builders, architects, homeowners have done like skylights, like the windows we've just described, like the atrium in the uh, Bertrand Goldberg house we talked about last week that are designed to sort of maximize what you can get on your little skinny lot. Very interesting use of this house. I think um, just how light plays, even in the kitchen, those those uh, windows that go all the way to the floor just makes it look so airy. Yeah, those are the windows out in front of the dining room. At the far end of that photo, oh, that's I that see. dining room, and you're in the kitchen. He designed a very minimalist kitchen because it's going to be right between the living and dining rooms, and he didn't want it to look like you know the place where all the spaghetti sauce gets spilled. He wanted it to look like a nice, pretty piece of sculpture when it's not in use. And if you look at the right side of the picture, I, I love this. Speaking of narrow lots, so the house next door is pretty close. Um, if you put up a window, many of us have lived in this apartment where you have a window and you're looking out at the brick wall of the house next of the building next door. What he did is he created the suggestion of light. There's a, a cutout in the wall there with lights in it so that you're still getting light from that side. It's artificial. And what you're not seeing is the brick wall of the house next door. I'm feeling very seen right now because <laughs> I too have a window right over here that faces a brick wall. That faces a brick wall. Yeah, you know, it's Chicago. We and I'm sure in other big cities as well. And so this is one of the solutions. And we should say it doesn't. So it doesn't feel like a cave because mm-hmm. it also has these giant skylights above. Uh, I believe the ceilings are eight feet high, and then the skylights go up to about 15. So you've got these big white, uh, big wells of light coming down into the living space. And again. Yeah. We're up on the upper floor. We're living, up, our main living rooms are up on the upper floor. So all that sun is coming down into the rooms we're using most often. Yeah. I wonder what that, uh, moving the living areas up a floor, I wonder what that does for sound. I have to believe that makes it a lot quieter just by virtue of kind of being up off the street. Yeah, I would think. And um, of course, that does mean that the bedrooms are on a slightly noisier level, but you're most likely to be in there. Uh, when there's less traffic at night to go to sleep. But yes, I think um, you get better light uh, and you get less noise when you're up at that level. Yeah, very creative. All right, let's go back to Lincoln Park and look at another house there. And this is the former BMO Harris CEO has sold his Lincoln Park home. Tell me about this place. Another nice one. This one went pretty quickly. It's noteworthy to me that I'm having to jump on these things so quickly because houses, mansions in Lincoln Park, places in Lake Forest, Evanston, elsewhere, they're moving, River Forest, they're moving so quickly. Uh, And I think that's going to be an interesting thing for us to look at a year or so from now. It's going to feel like the market has slowed down dramatically, but only because we were going 90 miles an hour and now maybe we're going the speed limit, 55. Uh, and it, it will be worthy of note at the time. So this house sold for slightly less than the 2012 purchase price, 3.7 million. I, I mean, I think it's interesting, like what you just said, that things are moving so fast, that you're having to jump on these so quickly, especially up at this level. You know, you think a lower price point with that kind of speed, but I know you're like 4 million up is kind of the, the demarcation line, but still 3.7 million, close enough. But note that we have not had that conversation about anything downtown in a very long time. That's true. That's very uh, I, true. 
I don't know who the buyers are of this one, but I do keep hearing from agents that there's a lot of buying in Lincoln Park and beyond from people who either were downtown or were looking to buy downtown. And that downtown slowdown just keeps hanging on. Uh, and so we're seeing the, this kind of activity, but we're not seeing it downtown. All right, let's talk about two houses in Lake Forest. The first one, um, another CEO or former CEO anyway, asking $6.5 million for a Lake Forest mansion. Uh, it was first listed in June and then relisted yesterday with the same price. Tell me about this one. This is kind of interesting because it's a waterfront house, but it's not on Lake Michigan. It's well over toward the western end of Lake Forest, overlooking Middle Fork Savannah, a giant forest preserve. And the way this house is positioned, it looks out onto a pond. You can see the water at the bottom there. And then across I think I measured it as about two miles of open land. Um, you, you'd look across this pond into public park, uh, municipal park, into Forest Preserve and beyond to Lake Forest Academy. So even though you don't have a view of Lake Michigan, you have a, a wonderful natural view with deer passing through and that sort of thing. It's quite a house. Uh, it's got, so you can see there's a staircase down to the pond. I'm not sure if that's to kayak or just to look. He was the CEO of General Dynamics. That was in the early 2000s. He's been back for quite a while. They built this house in a rather palatial way. As I said, it's over on the west side of Lake Forest near Middle Fork, Savannah. It's got a pool. It's got this colonnade. It really, I mean, given that canal, it feels to me like a house in Florida, even though mm -hmm. it's in Lake Forest. And, um, and it's pretty grand. And it's as you said, it's over $6 million. It's quite an ask. When this came on the market, I said, well, this is a lot of money to ask in Lake Forest, given what has recently sold. And then this other one came on the market that we're about to talk about. Let's go to that other house, because this one, uh, as you said, a this is a restored Lake Forest mansion, but as you said, uh, for sale at $10.5 I think the restoration story of this one is super interesting. This house is amazing. We can go back to its history, which is so many layers we should do like an entire podcast just on this house. But um, 10 years ago, almost exact, uh, 10 years ago, September, this house was completely shrouded in vines. I went to it and I took pictures and they're linked in my story. Um, it was covered with vines. It was, according to the listing at the time, uninhabitable. It had barely been maintained for a very long time. The couple who had owned it for, I think, 15 years had really only used it as a vacation home and they didn't do any updating and it hadn't been updated prior. Pipes burst and the real estate agent said you couldn't move in because of water damage, but she said it also needed a complete redo on the interior. So on the outside, it's covered with vines. On the inside, it apparently looked terrible. This house was bought for $2.2 million, $2.25 million. It's on nearly five acres in have you ever heard this term, um, Amy, Velf, very east Lake Forest? No, I haven't. Not just not. Lake Forest, not just east Lake Forest, but very, very. east Lake Forest. <laughs> Never heard it. Velf, um, okay. This is a Velf house. And it's, again, it's full of history. It's an architectural treasure and was, you know, run down. So it was lavishly restored by a rehabber, sold in the five millions several years ago, the People who bought it apparently did more, but neither they nor their agent would talk to me. So I'm not sure what was done prior to their purchase and what was done after. I know that they bought in 2013 and the listing says the rehab was finished in 2015. So obviously they did something. 
Um, that might be the pool. It might be some of the very stylish finishes, like the study is all black. It's wood and that sort of thing, but it's this jet black, which is really cool. So I, but it's been completely redone. We only have six or seven photos, but if you were to look at the roughly 40 that are in the listing, just beautiful finishes everywhere, completely redone. It feels like, um, it, well, it's magazine quality. It's the kind of place you would walk in and in every room you'd say, oh my gosh, wow. And then go to the next room and say the same thing. It's hard to look at these pictures and imagine this place being dilapidated. The restoration was clearly done pretty well. I mean, the kitchen is very modern. It has kind of that colorful cabinetry, which is very on trend right now, yeah. as they say. As far as I know, the kitchen was, uh, at the time that the rehabber bought this in 10 years ago, the kitchen, I believe, was the 1914 kitchen. Hmm. Uh, the house had been in one family from the mid-teens all the way to the 1980s. And then uh, it was, again, an un uninhabitable condition in the 2010s when it went up for sale. And as far as I could determine when I wrote about it, in uh, not in 2010, in 2011, as far as I could determine, there had been no upgrades made. So hmm. it may have been an old 1914 kitchen, maybe with some new appliances, probably designed primarily for servants to work in. So this could be the only time the kitchen's been modernized for this house. Yeah, interesting. I don't know that for sure, but, I'm, but I think so. Yeah, I, I wish there was more information available about the rehab because I'm sure just the story of rehabilitating this house is such a compelling one. I'm sure there are so many interesting details and plot twists as any rehab has. I'm sure there are. And it always drives me nuts when agents and their sellers won't talk to me, but sometimes I don't get to get the whole story. Yeah. But the history of this house is remarkable. It starts out in the 19th century as a very nice house, and then it's remodeled into a far nicer house in about 1914, and um, into it move in newlyweds. Uh, he's in banking and finance, and he's very important, but she is this, she's actually a figure I'm very fond of, um, Ginevra King, who I think you know from past stories. Uh, there are two houses in Lake Forest associated with Ginevra King. The one she lived in when she broke the heart of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who then turned his heartbreak into the great Gatsby. Wow. Modeled the, the main character, Daisy, on Ginevra King. That's one house in Lake Forest that I've written about extensively because it was on the market for quite a while. And then she breaks his heart and Mary, he's, he's a poor prep school kid. She leaves him for a rich guy. She, she too is rich, but she leaves him for a wealthy man, marries him and moves into this house. Um, so this essentially figures into the great Gatsby story as well. She ends up leaving that husband and marrying somebody else. And, the, and, and that husband remarries. Uh, the Armour family is involved. I mean, there are some, there's banking, there's publishing, there's meatpacking, and there's the great Gatsby all connected to this house just by the 1930s. And we're 90 years later. I feel like there's a book here. <laughs> I feel like there's an entire book that needs to be written about this house. This is so interesting. There is for anybody who's wondering, there are a couple books on, on Ginevra King and, and she's yes. a fascinating figure. One is, one is called The Violet Hour um, and she, or The Violet Hours. And she is just fascinating. I know we have to go on to other things, but one of the things I love is later, she's left this man, William Mitchell. She's married into the Peary family of Carson Peary and Scott. But F. Scott Fitzgerald has gotten famous and she's writing to him and 
essentially sort of saying, you know, I did always love you. And now that so you're famous to his daughter <laughs> saying, yeah, now she says, <laughs> right. It's right. fascinating. It's an amazing story. Anybody who hasn't read up on Ginevra King, I highly recommend it. Right. Now that you're famous, I'm very interested. <laughs> exactly. I always loved you, famous guy, even when you weren't famous. Yeah, even exactly. though I broke up with you when you weren't famous. Right. Let's talk when about you us. Famous and you were poor. Right. Well, my goodness, it's quite a house. Um, everybody <laughs> click through, see like see the rest of the you know pictures on this because lots of stuff to see here. Um, all right, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Well, one of the things I'm looking at is a massive run up in refinancing. I just said on Twitter, and I can say here, anybody who's refinan who lives in the Chicago area and refinanced in 2020, I'd like to talk to you. There, there was an enormous run up, and I'm going to do a story early next week. I'm also looking at the remarkable deals that people are getting on condos downtown. You and I have talked about the enormous oversupply as people turned away from buying downtown. This is not a story that says downtown is dead. This is not a story that says everybody's fleeing downtown. This is a story that says people who are buying downtown right now are getting great prices because of some of the clouds that have hung over downtown in the past year. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. Well, we will stay tuned and hear all about that next week, I'm sure. Coming up, Detroit's Atwater Brewery is set to launch in Chicago after Molson Coors Craft Beer Division acquired it last year. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Most companies are not performing at their full potential, and Salonis is here to help. Powered by its market-leading process mining core, the Salonis Execution Management System provides instruments and applications for business executives and users to maximize execution capacity, the level of performance that a company can achieve with their available time and resources. Salonis believes every company can unlock its full execution capacity. To see how you can maximize your company's potential, go to salonis.com get started to learn more. I'm Crane's reporter, A.D. Quigg, and you're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Flint, Michigan-based Insight has made a deal to acquire Mercy Hospital on Chicago's near south side. The deal is pending regulatory approval, but if it does happen, it would keep open a safety net hospital that had previously threatened to close. Healthcare reporter Stephanie Goldberg is covering the story in detail at chicagobusiness.com. Elected officials and community members for months have rallied against Mercy Hospital's planned closure in May. Now Flint, Michigan-based Insight is negotiating a deal with current owner Trinity Health that could keep the near Southside Hospital open. The biomedical technology company aims to acquire the safety net and run it as a full-service acute care hospital. The agreement brings relief to residents, particularly people of color, who feared that Mercy's closure would limit their access to medical care. Meanwhile, Insight has been looking to expand into the competitive Chicago market for some time. CEO Dr. Jawad Shah says he previously was in talks to acquire Metro South Medical Center, which closed in 2019. While some Chicago-area hotel owners have made deals with lenders during the COVID crisis, the number potentially facing foreclosure is now increasing. Among the latest, the owners of the Hotel Felix and Magmile Holiday Inn Express were recently hit with foreclosure suits for allegedly defaulting on loans in the neighborhood of $70 million, that according to Cook County Circuit Court records. In Schaumburg, records show a venture of Chicago-based Arbor Lodging Partners and Northbrook-based Middleton Partners faces a foreclosure 
complaint on a nearly $39 million loan it took out to finance its acquisition of the Schomburg Marriott. Commercial real estate reporter Danny Ecker has the story for Cranes. These hotel foreclosures are picking up. I mean, we're still seeing a lot of lenders wait it out and hope that things will come back, especially this summer. But for hotels that were having some issues before the pandemic, like the Felix and the Holiday Inn Express and River North, there's just not the same tolerance. And it's also a factor that those are CMBS loans. That's publicly traded debt. That makes it harder to simply modify terms of the mortgages. But we might look back at these as the beginning of a steady stream of these foreclosures through 2021 and into 2022 and maybe beyond. Uh, And it's not just lenders. I mean, some owners see this for themselves. Park Hotels and Resorts, which owns the two W Hotels downtown, just stopped making loan payments on the one in the loop in January. Owners are all going through their own calculations about what they think their hotel is worth, what it will take for it to come back post-COVID, and whether they think the current debt on the property fits with those expectations. In an unusual bipartisan move, the chairman and the ranking Republican on the Senate Judiciary Committee are asking the Biden administration to speed up reform of an immigration program important to many tech and higher ed communities, including Chicago's. In a joint letter, Chairman Dick Durbin and GOP colleague Chuck Grassley of Iowa asked the Department of Homeland Security to reconsider its decision to delay a pending revamp of rules to get H-1B visas. Tech companies in particular rely on the program for hard-to-get international national talent, with many of those involved now students at U.S. universities. The two wrote, quote, We were disappointed to learn of this delay, as the H-1B visa program is greatly in need of reform. Continuing, the practical effect of this delay is that outsourcing companies will continue to game the lottery system. And that refers to low-wage workers in hospitality and other industries that some companies bring in to avoid paying higher wages to U.S. workers. With a number of visas limited, that then limits the supply of highly educated people with advanced degrees from abroad who tech companies say cannot be replaced with domestic workers. The letter continues, quote, Establishing an equitable distribution of new visas is a key starting point to ensuring that the H-1B visa program is not used to lower wages and displace American workers. It goes on to say, Employers offering high wages to international graduates of American universities often lose out in the lottery, while thousands of new H-1B visas are issued each year to outsourcing companies offering below-market wages. Detroit's Atwater Brewery is bringing its beer to Chicago with the goal of getting tap handles into bars and restaurants within the next month or two. The company was acquired last year by the U.S. Craft Division of Molson Coors, and Atwater is among the top 10 craft brewers by volume and sales in Michigan. Crane's Ali Marotti has the story in detail. It's an interesting time to bring a new craft beer to Chicago and really expand any craft beer because the industry has suffered during the pandemic pretty hard. A lot of smaller craft breweries, especially the ones around Chicago and throughout the rest of Illinois, they've built their business models on selling kegs to bars and restaurants or other venues. And all of that has been closed because of the pandemic. So a lot of them last year, they saw their revenues drop, you know, 30 percent, 40 percent. They've had to pivot to canning their beer, which is a lot more expensive. Profit margins are lot lower. The craft beer brands and Molson Coors portfolio don't struggle with the same things. You know, they have Molson Coors distribution relationships that they can tap into. Um, Molson Coors has been able to work around a can shortage that has plagued the industry for months. So it's kind of interesting to see that they are expanding this brand at a time when a lot of others are struggling. There will be challenges, you know, um, 
a lot of people have gravitated towards brands that they know during the pandemic when they're buying in stores and a lot of beer purchases have gone to the stores, as I said. So, you know, Molson Coors is confident that they can work around those and that they can create, you know, a really interesting market here for Atwater. The name is interesting. It comes from Prohibition era in Detroit where the rum runners used to say to each other, meet me at water, and they would bring the booze and beer over from Canada, not only for Detroit, but for the Chicago market. So, you know, they feel that this is sort of a natural expansion for them. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.